Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome everyone to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. We explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, you can reach me with your comments and questions at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. For those of you who have tuned into this podcast previously, you no doubt have heard me reference the New York Times. I have my dad to thank for the image and memory that is vividly imprinted of him in his Eames chair, classic jazz on softly and feet up. I can still see his long, slender brown fingers and the solid brass ring he wore holding the paper at its outermost edges. He was not a folder. He held the paper wide as he read it and turned the pages. I still have that Eames chair. My dad, born in 1925, is no longer here. My guest today, however, is here and very present. I first reached out to him in 2015 to give him a hard time, playfully, but with some intent. I was hoping to have him in his role at the time as the most important food editor in the country to travel to South Los Angeles the next time he was in L.A. to give our little restaurant a look and bring some needed exposure to the overlooked food scene in South Los Angeles. Well, that was 2015. Not only did he give us a look, not too long after he facilitated our restaurant's inclusion in a major story by then New York Times journalist Jeff Gordner, about the growing prominence of Black restaurants and Black cuisine around the country. The article, titled A Bella Poke for African-American Cooking, appeared on the front page of the New York Times Dining Out section in January of 2016. And anyone in the restaurant business can attest to the fact there is no higher level of recognition than to be featured in this paper. An extra source of pride for me was that our restaurant, Post and Beam, was featured as I so closely associate my dad and his memory with the newspaper. I'm speaking of our guest today. I'm honored to welcome Sam Sifton. Sam is an assistant managing editor of the New York Times, responsible for culture and lifestyle coverage, and the founding editor of New York Times Cooking, which is a digital cookbook and cooking site. Since he arrived at the Times in 2002, Sam has served as food editor, culture editor, and national editor. He's worked as the restaurant critic and columnist for the New York Times Magazine. Sam also responds to the occasional email sent by that restaurateur who raised his hand several years ago in South L.A. and graciously agreed to join our podcast today. Sam, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a real, it's a real pleasure. I, I remember that email that you sent well. Um, I, um, I remember joking back with you that like the Times doesn't review restaurants south of the 10. <laughs> um, but of course, that was just, uh, that was just a joke. Um, yeah. And it was a thrill to get Jeff out there to do that story. Yeah, no, it was really, really meaningful for us. So I kick things off with short order questions. Shouldn't tax you too much. So tell me, what is your footwear of choice these days? What are you wearing on your feet, man? Oh, wow. You know, pandemic's changed everything. I'm out of hard shoes. Right before the (laughs) pandemic, or I guess a few months before the pandemic, I I had some work in Australia and I was down in Australia and I got these beautiful R.M. Williams slip-on boots, like beetle boots, you know, classic, beautiful shoes. Haven't worn them in a year and a half. I'm I'm, I'm just like, I'm in my Crocs half the time. I'm in my Vans half the time. 
you know, if it's a special occasion, I might put on my AF1s, but hard yeah. shoes I have not visited in a year and a half. I got a wedding coming up this weekend, though, so I'm going to get those RM Williams on and hope for the yeah. best. I'm sure your feet aren't mad at uh, comfort for a change. So, uh, no. Yeah. Sam, describe a perfect Sunday morning. Oh, so I had a perfect Sunday morning this last Sunday, and this is no knock on my children, whom I love to pieces, to the moon and back. But one of them's in college now, and the other one's on her way to college. And so we had this last Sunday a dress rehearsal of The Empty Nest, my wife and I. And we arose at a decent hour. We grabbed the dog and put her in the truck, and we drove from uh, our home in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn into Flatbush, and we picked up some doubles at a Trinidadian restaurant that we like on Flatbush Avenue. We ate them in the truck with the dog. We went to Prospect Park, and we took about an hour and a half walk through the park, just the two of us and the dog. And I thought to myself, I don't think I've done this in my adult life, <laughs> spent this much kind of quality time with my wife and wow. my dog on a Sunday morning. And it was just glorious. It was good food followed by a good walk with a person I love. And for those couple hours, I didn't miss the kids at all. <laughs> that sounds like a great off-Broadway play, a dress rehearsal for an, for the empty nest. Yes. <laughs> That's part one, what you described. I'm sure there'd be a, a little more drama down the road, but perfect. Uh, I can envision that completely. Sam, your favorite journey. Ooh, I love a journey. And so the notion of picking one out of the, the list of journeys seems difficult to me. But I became, this is before COVID, but I became enamored of these long haul flights to new places. I mentioned Australia earlier in the, in the podcast. I love the, the act of traveling literally across the globe into a new day, a different day, and to experience perhaps for the first time in, in my life what real travel must have been like for our parents, our grandparents, mm. our grandparents' grandparents. The, the idea that if you get into a vessel or onto a plane, mount a horse, get in a buggy and go for days and days and days, you, you can be completely cut off from the world mm -hmm. that you departed. And I felt that way in Australia, that I was somewhere else. I had well and truly traveled. And I thrilled to that. And I'd like to experience that again. I don't think we are able to get lost in our journeys as easily as our predecessors might have. And massive plane travel is, is one way to do that, to, to just cross so many time zones that you're in an, another day. And then the other way to do it, of course, is to, is to seek out the wilderness. It doesn't take, for instance, the better part of a day to, to do that. Um, another journey I love is to is to fly to Nassau in the Bahamas, spend the night, and then in the morning, take a small plane to the out islands, the family islands, all the way down the Bahamian chain, almost mm -hmm. to Turks and Caicos, where there are no people, where there's one flight a week. And in all, this is what, five hours of travel from New York City? And yet, here you are in a place where you will not see other people, other boats, other airplanes for the better part of a week. And that's magical, too, for the same reason. Yeah, man, I know in our communication back and forth and setting up this date, you used uh, the term off the grid that you were going to be off the grid for a while. Is is this that that period of time? Did you get to do that? 
Yes, I love being off the grid. I'm so connected as a news person and as a manager of news people to the grid. I'm available with frightening regularity on my instant message. You can text me. I'm on Slack. You get me on email. You call me anytime. And working hard to put myself in a position where there are no signals, where you simply cannot get onto email or, or, or onto Slack or onto the internet at all is a kind of secret joy for me. And I treasure it when I get the chance. I can imagine. What a sanity saver that must be. So finish this sentence for me, Sam. I have little patience for... You're a restaurant person, so I imagine this is something that we share. One of the many things that we share, Brad. But I have um, little patience for a lack of competence. I believe very strongly in in competence. Um, it's, it's It's the thing I treasure most in my friends. Um, is the ability to get stuff done uh, and be able to do things. And I, I do get irritated by a lack of competence. It, it frustrates me sometimes. I don't know if that answers your question. It, it, sort of it completely does. It. I, you, my head goes right to, I've got to do it myself. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you can't get it done, not only do I have to replace you, but in the interim, I have to do it myself. There's a wonderful scene in a newspaper movie called The Paper, a Ron Howard film. Uh, starring Michael Keaton. And there's an editor on on the desk in the newsroom uh, in that movie who's constantly asking Keaton for a synonym for a word or how to phrase something. And eventually Keaton just pushes him out of his chair and says, I'll do it myself. <laughs> I've been there. I wear been that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last, last one of these, Sam. So who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? And if you're cooking dinner, what are you making? I'm going for the tearjerker here, Brad, because one of the things that I would like to do in this moment, in this conversation with you, is I would like to have dinner with our fathers. Uh-huh. Because I, I sense in our communications over, over the years and in the stories that we've told about both of those men that they would get along. And, you know, I, I don't know my dad anymore. You don't either. I think it would be kind of cool um, to, to bring them together. I, I have some ideas for, for a menu there, but I kind of imagine they would prefer a restaurant meal. But um, if not, if not, I, I have... Um, a recipe that I got from Tony Tipton Martin that's been on heavy rotation for for nice nights during the pandemic for uh, essentially for pork chops in a kind of lemony caper gravy. Mm. Uh, they're like it's like a highbrow smothered pork chop situation with some rice and green beans, a couple nice glasses of wine. Talk about the old days in New York. I think that would be cool. I'd learn a lot. I bet you'd learn a lot too. All right, Sam. I have to take a deep breath on that one, man. Thank you for uh, for that illustration. I was right there with you, so thank you. And on that note, you know, there's so much I want to cover with you, including both of your books, See You on Sunday and Recipe No Recipe. But first, you know, along the lines of what you just discussed, <clears throat> we share a few things in common. Um, back in the '60s, as you you know, your dad shopped at Paul Stewart, and as I recall, you telling me he bought hats there. My dad was the first black salesman at uh, their downtown men's store. And I'd like to think maybe that he sold your dad a hat. Are yeah, you a I'd hat like guy? to believe that too. I'd yeah. love to. Well, 
I'm a bald man, so I, I, I do love a hat. Um, and I kind of wish those hats would come back. I mean, my, my dad had a whole series of, of really nice Paul Stewart hats, Borsellinos that he got at JJ's Hat Center in Manhattan as well. And that hat culture has sort of gone by the wayside. I'd love to see it come back. I think I look good in a hat, but you got to be careful. got to yeah. be careful. Hat's a tough look in 2021. They are. They are. They've always been. But you, you, I think uh, you're right. It'd, it'd be nice to see hat culture come back. I had Walt Frazier recently on the podcast, CX Nick, and we had quite a talk about hats and his choice of hat wear. And he claimed that uh, the Clyde name came from a choice that he made of a hat to wear in the locker room one day. And then the movie Bonnie and Clyde subsequently came out not too long after that. And oh, that's Clyde great. Stuck. One of one of my one of my early sneaker memories, of course, was the Puma Clyde, which was um, just a fantastic, still made, and just a great shoe. Might have to get yeah. some Clydes. In all yeah, the yeah, it's true. So, Sam, your folks very accomplished. Your dad was a senior district judge, um, I think, in the federal court system, and your mom uh, was a senior vice president uh, a, and a publishing executive and an author. Your grandfather was a well-known theologian, and your grandmother, also an author, was the founder of the Barnard College Department of Religion. I mean, Sam, okay, you went to Harvard, magna cum laude, author, blah, 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 New York Times, blah, blah, blah. When you got to make something to yourself here, man. You got I a know. lot of pressure I, on you. <laughs> a lot of pressure on me, man. A lot of pressure. I try not to think about it too much. Can you share a little bit, Sam, of what life was like in the Sifton household growing up? Sure. I grew up in Brooklyn. My dad was, as you said, a judge in the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Queens, and half Long Island. My mother was a book editor and worked in uh, Manhattan. And the memories that I have of, of childhood, this is a marriage that ended in divorce, by the way, but the happy memories that I have of, of childhood involved a lot of traveling around the city in pursuit of food. We would pile into uh, this rattle trap hoopty station wagon that my dad unwisely purchased in the 70s when all the cars were lemons and we would drive around just on missions to get cold cuts from this particular place in yorkville on the upper east side bread from the italian market in little italy uh he had a particular ginger beer that he liked that you could only get in in Crown Heights in, in Brooklyn. We would get hams here, vegetables there. And I, I didn't realize that this was an education in food that was happening to me at the time, but it really was. It gave me an appreciation for the breadth of New York City, uh, the diversity of New York City in both um, its population and in its and in its culture and in its food. And it was a big part. Like I don't I you know, I don't remember the rest of the family meals. I know we ate dinner together um, most nights, but the ones I really recall with, with joy are, are the weekend ones that came as a result of driving around and looking for food and bringing it home. Yeah, I, I can relate to that, man. I know my dad uh, had a croissant place called Dumas. Do you remember Dumas croissant on the east side? And yes, almond yes. croissant, that was our Sunday morning ritual. We would run across the park and sit there and have our almond croissants. And I would feel so sophisticated sitting there with my father having uh, having that for breakfast on Sunday. So aside from the uh, our New York connection, Sam, we both, from what I've gathered in reading up about you a bit, aside from our New York connections, I think we both share a love 
of New England, mine, Martha's Vineyard and UMass, you having visited Maine every summer since you were a kid and, and that school you went to at Cambridge, the, you know, whatever it's called, Harvard, I think. <laughs> but and also to the West Coast of Florida, where I currently am and understand that you have family. My wife and I have been here since uh, moving from L.A. The pandemic kind of forced us to stay in place. But my, you know, my Jones for New England kicks in strong like April, May and lasts well into the fall. I want to throw it back to the last review that you wrote for The New York Times in 2011. It was of Thomas Keller's per se at the uh, Time Warner Center in Manhattan. And as someone whose passion for New England summers runs deep, there was one passage that I want to read and explore a bit with you on the other side if I can. And so I quote, a meal at the restaurant at the end of September brought pan roasted Massachusetts cod with applewood smoked bacon, briny little neck clams, pickled garlic, celery and shoots of parsley. Clam chowder was the description on the menu as shiny glass might have advertised a diamond. The cod had a sweetness beneath its crisp, salty exterior that was distinct from that of the clams, which claimed the texture of the bacon. It was a pure distillation of autumn east of the Bourne Bridge, a hopper painting made edible, seafood squared. And you awarded them four stars at times, highest rating. Sam, there's so much packed into that paragraph. And you sent me down a very nostalgic, ultimately melancholy Edward Hopper Google search. I mean, the Bourne Bridge, and there was a Howard Johnson's at the end of that Bourne Bridge. That's right. I can remember driving all night with my folks from New York City, and the sun would just be coming up, and we'd start to roll the windows down and smell that salt air. I mean, can you can you give me a little bit of a take from your perspective on New England summers? What's that draw? What's what just resonates with with us so much about uh, about this well, imagery? Well, I'm struck. I just want to say I'm struck once again by a parallel between our past, Brad, and and that goes to the driving all night and arriving at dawn. <laughs> my my dad did that a lot with us when we were little kids, packing three kids into the into the car with his wife and all this stuff, and then driving up to Maine and and leaving so early in the morning that we would arrive as the sun was coming up. And yes, roll down the windows to smell that salt air and smell those pine trees. And it changed me every summer to to experience that. And I and I remember the reverse as well, which would be I'd stay with my grandmother who lived in uh, Bailey Island. Uh, in Casco Bay. And I would be up there for two and a half, three months. And then we would drive back, the endless drive back. And as we crossed into New York City and kind of came in into the Bronx to cross over, I guess, on the Third Avenue Bridge, you would Mm -hmm. roll down the windows and I would smell that asphalt trash and (laughs) see the bottle caps embedded in the asphalt went glinting in the, in the light from the street lamps. And it, that would change me too. And would just yeah. be like a switch going off. But we're talking about New England. And, and I think the experience of being in that crisp ocean air and eating food that comes from that place, so clams from those mud flats, fish from those weirs, corn from those fields, tomatoes from those plants on the front porch or what have you, describes for me immense happiness. And 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 it describes it that way wherever in that region I am. I had the great luck recently to be on on your beloved Martha's Vineyard, where I had not spent a ton of time and had that very experience of of eating those briny clams. I was looking down onto Vineyard Sound from my host's house and 
it just, I thought, this is perfect. This is <laughs> perfect. There's no, I, I get the majesty of the American West. I understand mm -hmm. how amazing it is to be in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. But at that moment on the vineyard, eating clams and spaghetti as the sun dropped down over Massachusetts, holy cow, know, it man. was just perfect. I know. I apologize for continuing to self-relate, but two things just popped vividly in my mind. And one was the last time I was on the vineyard with my son sitting on a lobster trap, eating uh, just clams on the half shell. And just I could not have been in a happier place. And then the um, the memory of pulling off of the West Side Highway onto 96th Street and Broadway with my father as we arrived back in the city from Martha's Vineyard and rolling down the windows and hearing those sounds and smelling those smells and saying, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn to your book, See You on Sunday, which, man, I, I absolutely love. Now, I know you've noted in previous interviews that, you know, COVID was just around the corner when this book came out and uh, was not the best time for planning Sunday gatherings. But Sure, we sure could use some Sunday gatherings uh, right now. If there ever was a time to gather with some friends, boy, this this feels like it. I wanted to read a passage from it, Sam, um, and just have you comment if you would. Um, so you wrote, quote, people are lonely. They want to be a part of something, even when they can't identify that longing as need. They show up, feed them. It isn't much more complicated than that. The point of Sunday dinner is just to have it. Even if you don't particularly like entertaining, there is great pleasure to be had in cooking for others and great pleasure to be taken from the experience of gathering to eat with others. Sunday dinner isn't a dinner party. It is not entertainment. It is just a fact like a standing meeting or a regular touch football game in the park. It makes life a little better almost every time. Sam, break that down, man. I mean, the football game in the park, I used to play that game. I had a regular basketball game uh, at the boys club on Saturday morning. And just the idea of the ritual and friends and the importance of that. What, Where did this originate for you? And, and just dive into that a little bit for us. Well, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, Brad. Like, where did this come from? Uh, did it come from, you know, did it come from the family business of working in churches? Maybe it, maybe it did. I certainly honed a lot of the recipes that are in CEO on Sunday in church parish halls, cooking in, in my buddy John's uh, church in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And I determined while doing that, that it was pretty special this thing that was happening where I was cooking for strangers, for friends as well, but friends and strangers, and providing a meal where there hadn't been a meal and observing how that meal affected those who consumed it, this literal fellowship of the table. And I thought, well, gosh, we ought to bring that into our lives more often. We do it. Most Americans do it once a year at Thanksgiving, either as a host or as a guest. We, we sit down in large groups and, and consume food and, and, and share the meal and, and ourselves. But what if we did it more regularly than that? What if we did it where it was just this thing that happens and anyone can come? And I tried that and it worked. It worked for me. It worked for those who, who came. Uh, and COVID <laughs> took that away from us for a little while. But I think the message of the book resonates now as we come back out of our shells, as we, as we can 
increasingly gather, or I hope we can increasingly gather, still masked, unfortunately, but increasingly we'll be able to be together. And I think that the act of, of cooking for and eating with others really does make people's lives better. Uh, even if they complain about it, as my kids did when they were little, they didn't, they, they didn't want to do this, but they learned and they loved it in their own special way. Well, I, I would venture to say, Sam, that the book, uh, although you may not have been, uh, you know, able to predict COVID and the impact, but I certainly say on the backside of this Sunday dinner with friends couldn't sound better. <laughs> you know, and I Absolutely. think it's going to be something I'm going to start. man. so thank you for that. Um, I want to turn to uh, No Recipe Recipe, your most recent book. Uh, it's a collection of dishes from your weekly Wednesday newsletter, What to Cook. And it really is a fantastic guide of what the ingredients are that you should have in your pantry, in your fridge, but also a pretty simple approach to preparing a wide range of meals. I know you've said th this is to some degree improvisational cooking and you've compared it to jazz a bit. Uh, some might say, that's crazy. Why would I buy a cookbook that doesn't have recipes? So tell me why. Well, I've spent a lot of time talking to professional cooks, to chefs about their recipes. And I'm here to tell you, and I think you may know this yourself, chefs are pretty terrible recipe writers. They just don't write recipes the way we civilians can, can use them. But to talk to a chef about the preparation of a dish, I find, is to, is to learn a lot more than I could learn if, if he or she wrote down the recipe. And I think having having said that I, I think it's also true that restaurant chefs spend a lot of time talking to their line cooks about how to make a, a dish and they speak in a kind of code and uh, and then the line cook executes that code and there's a delicious meal and I thought how interesting would it be to use that formulation in talking to our readers and just saying hey it's not so much, I mean, here's the secret truth. It is a recipe. It's just a recipe in a different form, right? And it it's a recipe that assumes that you have a kind of working knowledge of the, of the kitchen, that you understand what a splash of olive oil really is or what a knob of butter really really is. But it's, it's as if you're hearing from a, a grandmother or a cousin or, or, or a chef who's telling you how to, how to do something. And what's important about it, or the reason why you ought to buy it, in my opinion, is that the, the ideas that are in there, the, the flavor combinations, the, the things that you might do with pantry ingredients should, I hope, prompt creativity in the kitchen for the, for the reader. And if he or she wants to make it a little bit differently, make it a little spicier, a little saucier, a little drier, a little crunchier, go ahead. It's your recipe and you can make it uh, the way you like. So whether or not that's jazz, I'll, I'll leave to the critics. But the, the, the fact of the matter is a recipe in a traditional cookbook, that's like a piece of sheet music. And I think in, in the world of no recipe recipes, it's more like a chord chart. It's just showing you kind of some basics and you can kind of add to it as you, as you like. Yeah, I loved it, man. I, I found that there, it's the way that my wife and I like to eat for the most part, a lot of the dishes that you covered there and, uh, you know, easy enough preparations, but, you know, allow you to actually put something good and tasty on the plate, which is the intended, uh, what, what we hope for. So, um, you know, I, I saw 
a sit down at the the 92nd Street Y with you and Bobby Flay. Bobby Flay, I really admire a lot. I just think he's New York real. Um, He has a very direct way of saying what he wants to say, getting his point across. He mentioned his first job with Joe Allen. Of course, Joe passed last year. I'm good friends with his ex-wife, the architect, Dee Dee Allen. And when I think of memorable New York City restaurants and legendary operators of that era, Sam, I think of Joe, guys like Buzzy O'Keefe, Ken Oretsky, Keith McNally, Michael Weinstein, and even to a lesser extent, he wasn't known mainstream, but still influential, guys like my dad. Operators in places in the 70s and 80s that helped to shape the culture of New York City dining, a period before chefs became household names. I'm curious, I know I'm a little bit older than you, but what do any of those names or that period conjure up for you in terms of restaurant culture? It mean, They mean so much to me, Brad. I'm, I'm a little too young to really, really have lived experience in those restaurants in their prime prime, but I have learned so much from being a little bit of a nostalgist um, and certainly a little bit of a fanboy of that style of restauranting. And I was lucky enough to get to know Joe quite well because his restaurants are kind of canteens for the New York Times and have been for generations or since he opened them. I've celebrated Pulitzer wins in Bar Centrale above Joe Allen. I, in fact, got my the first interview that I had to get on the New York Times was in Joe Allen. Um, I, you know, I've spent time with producers in Orso next door. Like, so I, that whole scene captivates me and I love the way it, and I love the way it, seemed to emanate from from Joe, who was just that guy sitting at the bar drinking a Heineken and reading the paper. I love it in Ken Oretsky as well, at Oretsky's Patroon, to see this this guy who looked like he just walked out of Paul Stewart, who's, <laughs> who's an operator, and to see how he runs that restaurant and has been able to run that restaurant through thick and thin has been uh, amazing. Buzzy O'Keefe, I grew up in Brooklyn Heights, so um, his his founding of that restaurant in what was a wasteland of a neighborhood when he when he built it to see how it flourished and continue to flourish over time is really something and and you know i love the river cafe i don't think the river cafe food is the greatest in the world it's certainly not revolutionary at at this point but the experience of being waited on let's say by buzzy or someone trained by buzzy as the sun is going down over glittering manhattan that's really special and it's something that a celebrity chef can't deliver it's only something that a restaurateur can deliver. And I think, once again, call me nostalgic, but I think it would be great if on the far side of kind of rock star celebrity chefdom, we saw a return to the rise of the operator, a return to the primacy of the restaurateur, who is the director setting up every aspect of the operation in such a way that it brills the guests. Well, and, and at the risk of self-promoting, I, I couldn't agree more as an <laughs> So I want to bring this back to where we started, Sam. We're, we're winding down here too soon, but um, that's the way it is. In light of the raised awareness around privilege, diversity, and inclusion, you know, I want to bring this back to how you and I met, you know, and of course, jokingly, you said, oh, we don't review restaurants south of the 10. <laughs> when I went to open Post and Beam in 2011, I looked at Los Angeles Magazine, who had done a food map from down downtown to Manhattan Beach and dots where various restaurants of note were. 
they did a flyover of South LA. Our relationship, which led to that piece that I had mentioned, is meaningful in that the coverage that uh, you extended to myself and restaurateurs around the country is meaningful. So I'm curious, in light of what we've experienced this past year and, and the words, you know, privilege, diversity, inclusion, how do these conversations happen? What, what's the role of the times? What, what kind of conversations are happening around those tables? There are loads of conversations happening around that, important conversations, conversations that will continue to change who we are and how we cover things and, and, and what we do. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of them. Um, and I'm thrilled to have been a part of them uh, at the times for, for my tenure there. I think what's really interesting about the New York Times is that we've gone from being a local newspaper to a metropolitan newspaper, to a national newspaper, to being an international news gathering organization that has 5 million paying subscribers and, and wants to get to, to 10 million paying subscribers. And I want those paying subscribers to look like the country in which I live. I want it to be a news gathering organization that can tell the story of our world to itself that can help, as our mission has it, to um, discover the truth and help people understand the world. And the only way we can do that is to be as diverse and inclusive as the nation we serve, as the world we serve. And so you see that coverage come out of new hires, out of a different understanding of who's at the table making decisions about what we cover and, and, and how, who's writing the stories. How are the stories being told and how are the stories being put out into, into the world? And that's important work. It's not, um, it's not easy work. It's often uncomfortable work, but it's good work. Uh, and it's important work because it makes us a better news gathering organization. And our hope is that if we do that, we're better people for it. Not us at the New York Times, the readers are, that we're helping people understand the world and the world we want to live in is diverse and inclusive. Well, Sam, you know, major props to you and the Times. I, I, I love the newspaper and it's a, it's, you know, a ritual for me daily. Um, last question before I let you go. I know you're an avid fisherman. Last fish you caught. Oh, that's, that's an, that's a great question. Although a sort of humbling one. We are on the East coast of the United States right now, waiting on the fall run of fish who have been pushing up uh, towards Maine and Canada over the course of the summer and are now beginning their annual migration to the to the south. So at Montauk Point on the end of Long Island, soon the striped bass, the false albacore, the bluefish will all kind of rush at the bait that it that is there and try and fatten up for, for the winter. I'll be out there to meet them. And I've been doing a lot of a scouting in these last few uh, weeks, whenever I can get out on, on, on the water. I've been looking for uh, Benito, the, the small tuna, which is a delicious fish to eat. I don't kill straight bass. There are not enough of them, but I do target them for catch and release. Anyway, I've been out looking for all of these fish. And the last one I got was a bluefish. Nice bluefish. They're fun to fight. They're a delicious eat if they're small. Um, I didn't kill that one, but returned it to the water to swim again. But soon I'm going to have cut up thumbs from lifting those striped bass <laughs> out of the water when I catch them. We'll start with a bluefish and we'll move on. Yeah, that's a great. And I love bluefish. I know bluefish doesn't get its proper credit all the time, but I, I love fresh bluefish. So Sam Sifton, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to join us in Corner Table Talk. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Brad. I hope to come back. Hope to do it again. And most of all, I hope to see you this year. In that would be lovely. Thanks, Sam. 
So here we go, folks, with uh, the segment of our program we call How We Move with my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz. So Ambassador Sam Sifton, boy, we had some places in common, some things in common. He said some things that touched me. Uh, Big job he has at the New York Times, assistant managing editor, food. Great guy. What did you take away from the conversation? Absolutely enjoyed listening to Sam Sifton, his candor, his wit. He's forthright. I appreciate that story you told at the beginning where he, you know, kind of joked, but then came 100% and more in support of, you know, where there's a gap, he's a seeker and he likes to fulfill on behalf of the greater population or audience um, for himself as well. I love that he's just as interested in finding out the answers for food, culture, music, lifestyle, um, age gaps, um, songs and lyrics that he referenced, and the journeys and histories of how food um, um, navigates. And listening to the two of you who may not have known each other for a long time, you could have, you know, you know, a, a little age gap, a little couple of blocks, a borough or two, and yet paths must have crossed a million times just based on the visuals that you each gave were so verbatimly similar and wonderful. I loved when he referenced your dad and his dad as the opportunity to fellowship, break bread with someone here or gone. What could be more significant and sensitive and um, giving as that is pulling from all the options that he has. So I really appreciated them and the fact that his job is never done. I mean, not done because of employment, not but not done because of interest. Did you feel the same parallel that I? Well, yes, yeah, absolutely. Everything that you said, and also to the, um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I started a, a conversation with him several years ago that uh, has just kind of continued periodically over time. And I was really pleased when he agreed when I reached out and asked if he would be a guest of ours on on Corner Table Talk. And it brings up for me, and I'm and I'm curious to get to get your take on this. But you know, access at this level, right? I mean, we're talking about the assistant editor, managing editor of the New York Times, and I, you know, I've been in the restaurant industry, and you've lived a life long enough to know where we felt left out by mainstream media. So I'm curious to get your thoughts about what having access means. Certainly, access and the bridge. Makers, right? So when you propose to him, what do you think your responsibility is as a result of the kinds of vacuums that we find ourselves in? He, first of all, your relationship started there. And in light of what we experienced last year, the last two years, he said it's topical. It's not an easy route, but it is front and center of all the things that are key. I think any of us that are sitting at the table have to make sure that there's room for others. That's our role. It's not just to be there. It's to make sure we widen the playing field. And he certainly seemed to be a person that was restless until there was real legitimate equity and participation because he benefits from it as well. He shared that, his joy, Mm -hmm. his entries. Um, So access is something that either we acquiesce or we proclaim. And I think for people of color or people who've been marginalized, it's time for us to just simply proclaim it because it's actually already ours. We've been trained to presume otherwise. And so hence we acquiesce. 
So we just walk forward. It's like the seller and you between your father's journey and yours is nearly 50 years, nearly 50 years. How many times within that time had you been on the borderline of acquiescing? But because it is who you are, how you are, what you're born to do and share, not just in the kitchen, not just in the dining room, but part of it is the fellowship. It's the gathering space. It's like the Corner Table Talk podcast. It's not just a practice of yours. It's an opportunity to bring a library of people together to share and in part break bread. That's also part of your legacy. Sam Sipton shared aspects of his life, that journey. He's not doing what his parents did. He's finding that outlet in touching the world, impacting the world his way. And the times is, I mean, a better seat to have. Yeah, well said, you know, well said. I mean, I, I'm appreciative that the irony of our relationship is that I reached out to him initially uh, and to the Times initially in trying to get my dad's obituary published when, when he passed away. And, you know, because of the short period of time between, um, you know, his passing and and uh, all the other stuff that you have going on and, and you know, and then the, the service I was planning, the Times wanted me to provide documentation for the fact that my dad was a, you know, a, a well-respected, you know, 20 year plus restaurateur and who he meant and what the, what the restaurant meant. And I, and, and my scramble to do everything that I had on my plate at the time, I couldn't take the time to research and provide documentation, but in retelling that so, so that as the result was that the times did not publish his obituary. And when I told that story to Sam, Years later, when uh, I had reached out for uh, attempting to get some coverage for, for Post and Beam, that is what has was the uh, impetus and and what started our our relationship. And there's you know there's irony there, and it and I but I I'm very appreciative that uh, that the relationship has continued. I'll say. Yes, yeah, so am I. I really enjoyed listening to him, his voice, not just his literary prose. Or now I got to hear the heartbeat behind the author, which mm-hmm. was really quite affirming for me to know that people like him in those positions really do exist on our behalf. It's really cool. You know, I loved his book, See You on Sunday. And, you know, in my childhood, the Shabazz Ponderosa, (laughs) I can call it that, big family, you know, was very often an open house of guests, three generations, you know, all coming together to break bread somewhere between 11 and 6 on Sundays when my father was alive and the whole family was intact, you know, to this like slow cook aroma of kosher preparations and African and Middle Eastern marinade foods filled with, you know, all kinds of folks talking when they entered the room in the house. You know, hey, Sister Betty, you know, it was really great. Make my mother feel good. And, you know, we would have these, this great meats, you know, and vegetables and homemade bread and everything, and children, you know, from my age group as well. And I just think about the rituals of round table, and which is really quite precious. And, um, you know, I think more of us should identify ways during this fellowship-less time to do that in the simplest ways and find that union whether it's the Sundays, whether it's the virtual parties that people get to have now. And what are the simple one, two, three preps? You know, the occasion, the medium, the menus and the promises made, you know, what do we toast to now? Yeah, well, on that note, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the the last couple of years have left us all longing for that, uh, you know, that Sunday dinner 
atmosphere with friends. And uh, and I really cherish that and embrace the concept to the extent that I want to know what you want for dinner when we start our little Sunday night dinner parties over at, at our place. And you're going to be the guest of honor. So I need you to come back to me with a little menu of requests. Well, I might be in the kitchen. I'm one of those that even if I'm invited, I'm, you know, my coat goes down and I'm washing my hands and I'm in that kitchen with my hand on my hip saying, what do I do next? Why That's does that me. not surprise me? <laughs> I'm in here. Are you seasoning? <laughs> Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. How we move. Thank you. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.